If you have your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 2, the Gospel of John chapter 2, and I want you to follow along with me beginning at verse 13. John chapter 2, beginning at verse 13, and I am reading from the English Standard Version. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables, and he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away, and do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. I'll keep reminding you uh, that John's purpose in writing this gospel is to make clear to us that Jesus is God. He's the Savior. We hear it in John 20 and verse 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is just what John continues to do in this passage before us. Last week we noted in verse 11 that this is the first uh, this the first of his signs Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Why did Jesus turn water to wine? His ultimate purpose was to manifest his glory, to make himself known as the Son of Man, God the Son, the Christ, the Savior. He's manifesting his glory. Remember that when Jesus manifests his glory, he's making himself known as God in flesh. He's revealing who he is. And the purpose for which Jesus manifested his glory was so that his disciples would be strengthened in their faith in him. Strengthened in their belief in him. And we saw in verse 11 that they were. They were strengthened in their faith in him. When it says his disciples believed in him. And like last week, we're beginning at the end. So we're going to go back to the end of the passage, which I just read. We're going to begin at the end 
Because it's there, we see the purpose for which John shows us Jesus' actions. It's to see that Jesus is God. It's to have this thought clearly driven home and uh, given as a reminder to us again and again that Jesus is God. We're going to see that in two ways today. Jesus is revealed as God in two ways in the text before us, and we're going to see the first in a moment. But let's look first Again, let's go to the end of the passage. Look at verse 22 again, starting at the end of this story. When therefore he was raised from the dead. This whole passage points to this verse. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Our whole text today leads to John's statement in verse 22 when Jesus' disciples recalled what he did. When they recounted what he did and what he said, they believed, it says, they believed the Scripture and the Word that Jesus had spoken. They were strengthened in their belief in and faith in Jesus. In verse 12 last week, we saw that Jesus and his mother and brothers and disciples go to Capernaum where they stay a few days. And then we get to verse 13 this morning, and we're told in verse 13 that as Jesus went on to Jerusalem at the time of the Jewish Passover, he he went on, the Jewish Passover was at hand. When Jesus arrives at the temple, what he finds troubles him deeply the other three gospels Matthew Mark and Luke they also mention a time when Jesus cleansed the temple if you read those accounts you realize there's something different going on they point to that time being at the end of Jesus ministry Uh, while John points to this temple cleansing near the beginning of Jesus ministry so this is Jesus first If you read those accounts and this account, you realize there were two temple cleansings. This is Jesus' first temple cleansing. Something else that points to the two separate times that Jesus cleansed the temple is that in this account, in John's Gospel, we don't see the kind of opposition to Jesus' ministry like the other three Gospels record. There's also a different outcome from the other accounts. So I think we're seeing here in John 2, Jesus' first first temple cleansing. Now the, the outer courts, you need to understand the outer courts of the temple were intended to be a place of prayer, a place for other acts of worship. Uh, but instead, what Jesus found when he got there in the temple courts, there was something that troubled him. So verse 14 says, pointing to what troubled him, there were those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now why why would there be people selling animals in the temple courts surrounding the temple? The reason for this is that the law required sacrifices such as oxen and sheep and pigeons and people would come for this Passover from all over. They would travel from great distances and they could not bring with them the required sacrifice. 
People traveled from all over for this occasion, so it was likely that this custom had grown from the need to sell sacrificial animals to the travelers who could not bring their own. And of course, one thing leads to another. So money changers were needed because before anyone could purchase one of these animals, they needed to exchange their various types of currency for the certain kind of coin. In fact, this certain kind of coin was of a, of a pure silver, purer silver, which the only, these were the only coins the priests would accept conveniently enough. And what upset Jesus was not that there were people in need of sacrificial animals. That didn't upset him. What upset Jesus was that when they came, they found people who were taking advantage of them. What upset Jesus was not that there were people in need of sacrificial animals, but for what came after when greedy people began to seize on an opportunity. And what started out as a convenience for those who came to worship had turned into a money-making scheme disguised as an act of kindness. And that's why we see Jesus in verse 15 making a whip of cords, it says, driving out the sellers with their sheep and oxen and pouring out the money and overturning the tables of the money changers. It was chaos. But I want you to take note of something. Take note here that there's nothing about this that suggests any violence on Jesus' part. And what I mean by that, here's the whip, was a whip of cords or rope. That was fairly harmless. But it was very handy for getting animals moving. And that it did. And, and had there been any danger to the people in the temple, the guards would have stopped him, stepped in and stopped him, but they didn't. And John does not say that Jesus hurt anyone physically. But at the same time, I want you to know this, that Jesus is no passive wimp. He did drive out these greedy people along with their animals. He did overturn the tables of the money changers. Those who've made Jesus out to be someone who was docile and passive and effeminate have done him wrong. We also know from the gospel accounts that Jesus is compassionate. He is a strong individual, and yet he is also compassionate. He has emotions, we see it in the scriptures, that cause him to weep. He's compassionate when compassion is needed. But when it's time to make right a wrong, he's a passionate and strong individual. And just take note here. Here's an important side note here. Something that the church today is losing. The church doesn't need men who, who are pushovers. The church needs men who will stand and lead with the truth of God's word and do so with compassion, just as Jesus demonstrates with his earthly ministry. 
Godly men, men who take God's word seriously, are not a threat to women. They are compassionate, and yet they are passionate about standing for the truth of God's word and doing so with courage, come what may, even if the culture and the climate of the culture go totally against them. That was just a side note. That's free. <laughs> Bonus. <laughs> Jesus leads, and men should lead. So what's, what's wrong What's the wrong that had been done here? What's the wrong that Jesus is so upset about? It's seen in verse 16 in what Jesus tells those who sold the pigeons. Look at verse 16 again. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Pause for a moment. The deity of Jesus is pointed to in that sentence, that phrase, my father's house. So here's the first pointer in our text today to the fact that Jesus is God. And it's seen in his passion for purity. It's the purity of heart that Jesus is concerned about. And this points to Jesus being God in human flesh. Jesus is passionate for the purity of heart. Jesus is passionate for purity of heart. Note that Jesus didn't condemn those who were buying. He wasn't driving them out of the temple. He was driving out those whose hearts were wrong, whose motives were wrong. He was driving out those who were there for the wrong reason, the ones who were there for selfish gain. And did you notice the contrast that Jesus pointed to? He said they were making His father's house, again, that that pointer to Jesus' deity, his father's house, a house of trade. His father's house was a place of worship, a place of repentance, a place of sacrifice, a place of prayer. But they were making a mockery of it by making it a marketplace veiled in worship. Their marketplace in the mindset in the mindset of these these people who were carrying on this commerce, their their marketplace in the midst of the temple courts revealed the true condition of their hearts. It revealed where they were truly were spiritually. In fact, later in verse 25 can skip to 20, verse 25, John tells us that, that Jesus knew what was in man. He knew the hearts of man. He knew the hearts of the people that he encountered. And he knew where these money changers were and these people selling oxen and sheep and doves. He knew their hearts were in the wrong place. Those who were selling And changing money for great profit were not there because they wanted to honor and glorify God. And that's what angered Jesus. It was greed veiled in religious piety. Jesus gets right to the heart of the problem. 
It's their love of money instead of their love for God. John says in verse 17 that Jesus' disciples remembered that it was written. And it's a quote from Psalm 69.9. Zeal for your house will consume me. It's a zeal for purity of heart. And there would be other times Jesus dealt with the same problem which Jesus saw in the scribes and the Pharisees. Listen to Luke 16, verses 13 through 15. We hear Jesus say, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Jesus is passionate about purity of heart. It points to his deity. Jesus was zealous for God-honoring purity and holiness in his Father's house, which is an indicator of his passion for the purity of his people. Jesus Christ is zealous for holiness and purity of heart. That's a pointer to his deity. It's the same thing we hear 1 Samuel 15.22 speaks of when God rejects Saul's sacrifice after his half-obedience, Samuel tells Saul, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying. Obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. So listen, church. We may not buy and sell for church uh, in the church for personal profit. We may not buy and sell for personal profit here in the church. But the lesson for anyone who calls them a, calls themselves a believer in Jesus Christ, a Christian, is that you dare not be one who only honors God with your lips, but has a heart. Far from him. That's the warning from Matthew 15, 8 and 9. We dare not be those who say we love God, say we honor God, but have a heart that is going totally the opposite direction. God is far more interested in where your heart is than where you say your heart is. And to say you love God but have a heart that longs for personal profit over and above God's glory, profanes his name. God calls us to give ourselves to him wholeheartedly through faith in Jesus Christ, through daily obedience, through the pursuit of daily obedience that honors and glorifies his name. And if we gather here on the Lord's day, because it seems appropriate, and then we go out and live the other six days the way that we want to live, 
in ways that oppose God's truth, we are profaning the name of Christ. Jesus Christ came to make the glory of God known and to free us from anything that would entangle us and keep us from giving God the glory due His name. So if your faith is in Jesus Christ, God is all about liberating you from the bonds of your sin and giving you the courage and the boldness and the wisdom of God's Word by the power of His Spirit to say no to temptation on a daily basis. Saying yes to obedience to Christ. Saying yes to giving God the glory with your whole life. So the heart of the matter for you is what is it you really worship? That's essentially the challenge Jesus was making as he chased these people from the temple courts. What is it you're going to worship? Are you going to worship money? Or are you going to worship God? So the fact that Jesus is God is seen in his passion for purity of heart. And Jesus Christ came to give himself as a sacrifice for sinners so that, so that we sinners might be given a chance, an opportunity, given forgiveness, but given the strength to say no to sin, to say no to the temptation of being controlled by money or anything else that would control us apart from God's Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Jesus Christ came to give himself as a sacrifice for sinners so that we sinners might be forgiven our sin and be saved and be made pure of heart. Not because we're always pure of heart, not because we're always sinless, but because we have Christ dwelling in us by way of His Holy Spirit, using His Word, helping us grow in Christ's likeness. We're pure in heart when we believe in Jesus because He moves in and takes up residence. Sin is impurity and sin kills, but Jesus gives a new heart. Jesus saves eternally. Jesus gives life, and with it, the ability now to turn from sin with his help. Giving us new motives, new desires, new life. Now, I want you to notice another pointer to the deity of Jesus. It's in the reference to the temple. And here's the pointer, Jesus holds the power over death. It's what we hear. It's what we see from this pointer to the temple. Jesus holds the power over death. Beginning in verse 18, the Jews push back. How? Uh, by saying that they want a sign. Something to verify his authority, to come in and tell them they're, they're doing something that's wrong. In other words, how dare you tell us to do this? Who gives you authority to do this? Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? That's a convenient question. They're stalling. Jesus got right to the heart of the problem. They're sinful hearts, and they want to dodge and make it an issue of his authority. Who gives you authority? 
In verse 19, Jesus responds to their stall tactic by saying, he knows, that they, he knows their hearts. He knows they don't believe in him. And so it, it, his answer is not a clear answer that they're going to understand. But it is a prophetic answer. He knows that they will crucify him. So, in verse 19, Jesus responds to their stall tactic by saying, destroy this temple. In other words, you will destroy this temple. He doesn't say it that way, but that's what he's saying. You will destroy it. Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. You want an answer? Who gives me authority? I'm God. You're going to destroy this temple. You're going to bury this temple. And in three days, I'm going to raise it from the dead. I'm God. John tells us in verse 21 that when he spoke of this temple, John interprets for us. But there was no interpretation at that moment for anyone standing nearby, not even for his disciples. John tells us in verse 21 that when he spoke of this temple, he was speaking about the temple of his body. But in verse 20, it's clear that the Jews didn't see Jesus for who he is or understand what he was talking about. Look at verse 20. Then the Jews said, the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. They're pointing at where they're standing, this temple. They don't get it. Their eyes are veiled in darkness. Their hearts are veiled in darkness. It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? You want a sign, says Jesus? I'll give you the sign after you've crucified me. They're asking for a sign that reveals their unbelief. And what Jesus is exposing is that the same sin cloaked in religiosity that causes them to take advantage of people for the sake of personal profit, all the while claiming to do good to them, is the same sin cloaked in religiosity that's going to kill the temple, Jesus Christ. This temple, his body. Their same pride and selfishness and greed that, that was on display in the, in the temple courts that day was the same selfishness and pride and greed that would crucify the temple, Jesus. And the sign he will give them will be that he will raise this temple. He will raise it from the dead. He will raise his body from the dead on the third day. Jesus is pointing to the fact that he holds the power over death. Jesus is revealing himself as God who holds the power over death. In John 10 and verse 15, Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep. 
I lay it down. And then in verses 17 and 18, there in John 10, he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Who is Jesus? He's the one with the power over death. He's God. And because he is who he says he is, you and I can believe in him and be saved from eternal death and eternal separation from God in hell. And you can know that he will raise you to eternal life In verse 22, John tells us that when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. They looked back and said, remember he said this would happen. He said he would do this. And they believed, it says verse 22, they believed the scripture and the word Jesus had spoken. At the time, the Apostle John didn't understand what Jesus meant when he talked about destroying this temple. The other disciples didn't understand it then either, but when John wrote this, the Holy Spirit had made it clear to him It was after Jesus was raised from the dead, and even then they only understood because they believed the Scripture. Do you see that? They believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The disciples believed the Scripture. You might think the disciples had some special Revelation, because they had Jesus. And if I had had Jesus in my presence, I would have believed also. But you know, it says here that they believe the Scripture also. Do you know what you and the disciples have in common? You have the Scripture. You also have something that they didn't have. At the moment Christ was with them in the flesh, they didn't have the indwelling presence of the Spirit. He would give that later. But you, you have the indwelling presence of the Spirit if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And you have the presence of the Holy Spirit to help you believe the Scriptures. You have the Scriptures. Do you believe the Scriptures? Do you believe the Bible? Do you believe the Word Jesus has spoken in His Word? There's a wonderful promise several chapters later for all who believe. Listen to John 6 and verse 37. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. How can he say that? Because he's God. 
And if you are His, if you have turned to Christ in faith and believed in Jesus Christ, you are saved because He saves you and He keeps you. Look to Jesus and believe. Believe in Him and know you have life. And with that new life, live for Him. Because Jesus is passionate for the purity of your heart, for the purity of your worship, for the purity of your life, And you can trust him to save you and help you live for him because Jesus holds the power over death. He moves in and takes up residence and intends to change you. He's patient. (laughs) Praise God from whom all blessings flow. He's patient. He's, He's about changing you little by little. As you look to his word, you believe in the scriptures and you believe in Jesus and you walk with Christ day by day, taking seriously what Jesus takes seriously, the purity of your worship, the purity of your heart, your devotion to him, the purity of your religion. As you trust in him, as you look to him, as you walk with him, as he holds your hand every step of the way, as you look to him because you realize he holds the power over death, he can handle anything in my life. He can handle my temptations, my weaknesses, my faults, my sins. My sins are forgiven. Praise God. Look to the Son. Look to the Savior. Look to Jesus. And have the same kind of passion for the purity of your heart that he does. Strengthened with the same kind of faith and hope that's yours because he holds the power over death and life.